begin with Genesis. And it can be summarized like this, the creation and fall of humanity, which is followed by the ensuing moral collapse of the human race leading to the flood. After the flood, God makes a covenant with Noah. Then there's the Tower of Babel and finally Abraham and the covenant. I want to share three important passages from the book. These referenced previous in previous episodes, but bringing them to you here again. Genesis 3, speaking to the serpent after the fall. And I quote, And I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head, and you will strike his heel. Skipping to Genesis 19. This one spoken after the flood. And now I establish my covenant with you and, your de- and with your descendants after you and with every living creature that was with you, the birds, the livestock, and all the wild animals, all those that came out of the ark with you, every living creature on earth. I establish my covenant with you. Never again will all life be destroyed by the waters of a flood. Never again will there be a flood to destroy the earth. Skipping now to Genesis 12 and words spoken to Abram, later named Abraham. Go from your country, your people, and your father's household to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse you. And all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. Genesis ends with the descendants of Abraham living in Egypt. Exodus begins with those same descendants becoming enslaved for a very long time. They were in Egypt over 400 years. God raises up a deliverer, Moses, who leads Israel out of Egypt and begins to teach them the way of God. Some time before, God had met Moses or maybe I should say Moses had met God at a burning bush near Mount Sinai. In the encounter, God spoke these words to him, Exodus 3. And I'm quoting, I have indeed seen the misery of my people in Egypt. I have heard them crying out because of their slave drivers, and I am concerned about their suffering. So I have come down to rescue them from the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land into a good and spacious land, a land flowing with milk and honey. Another quote from the book, and it's a noteworthy one. Israel was given the Ten Commandments, and here's the beginning. You might call it the preamble of the Ten Commandments. Here it is. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt out of the land of slavery, and then proceed what we remember as the Ten Commandments, or what we know as the Ten Commandments. Then the book of Leviticus gives detailed instructions related to worshiping God, including details on sacrifices and sacred celebrations. Instructions in the book also include guidance for health as well as civil conduct. And in Leviticus, or from Leviticus, I've chosen a bit of a strange verse. But Leviticus, but I think you'll understand, because Leviticus has a lot to do with sacrifice. And central to sacrifice, and even the diet guidelines, and some other guidelines and laws in Exodus, is blood. So I chose a text on blood 
from the book of Leviticus. It's chapter 17. You must not eat the blood of any creature because the life of every creature is its blood. Anyone who eats it must be cut off. Numbers takes us from the desert of Sinai to the borders of Canaan twice. The book also indicates that a census of Israel is taken twice, one before leaving the Sinai desert and the other when near the border of Canaan the second time. Due to unbelief and rebellion, those who left Egypt would not enter the promised land. Instead, that privilege would be given to their children. Instructions are also given regarding the territorial allotments when the land would be settled. A notable verse comes from Balaam's prophecy. You remember King Balak hires a prophet Balaam to, he hopes, curse Israel. Well, in the process, Balaam instead blesses Israel. And here are words from that prophet Balaam. I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star will come out of Jacob. A scepter will rise out of Israel. Words referring to the coming Messiah uttered by Balaam. Deuteronomy contains Moses' farewell instructions as he prepares for his death, after which Joshua will take leadership of Israel. In it, he recounts much of the history of Israel as well as reinforcing God's instructions to them. What's fascinating about Deuteronomy is the way Moses recounts the history from his perspective. The book ends with Moses' death, which the people mourn for 30 days. Here are final words from the book. Now Joshua, son of Nun, was filled with the spirit of wisdom because Moses had laid his hands on him. So the Israelites listened to him and did what the Lord had commanded Moses. Since then, no prophet has risen in Israel like Moses, whom the Lord knew face to face, who did all those signs and wonders the Lord sent him to do in Egypt. To Pharaoh and to all his officials and to his whole land, for no one has ever shown the mighty power or performed the awesome deeds that Moses did in the sight of all Israel. Joshua recounts the settling of the land, which includes some remarkable stories, such as crossing the Jordan River in peak wet season, the fall of Jericho, and the sun standing still in a battle against the Amorites. At the beginning of his leadership career, God had told Joshua, and I quote from chapter 1, No one will be able to stand against you all the days of your life. As I was with Moses, so I will be with you. I will never leave you nor forsake you. Be strong and courageous, because you will lead these people to inherit the land I swore their ancestors to give them. Early in the book, Joshua has an encounter with the angel of the Lord, similar to Moses' encounter at the burning bush, during which he, Joshua, is instructed to remove his sandals. Again, similar to Moses' encounter at the burning bush. The final chapter records Joshua giving the people a farewell speech, in which he recounts God's providential leading and urges them to be faithful, reaffirming the covenant for them. And that's in Joshua 24. Now fear the Lord and serve him with all faithfulness. Throw away the gods your ancestors worshipped beyond the Euphrates River and in Egypt and serve the Lord. In the speech, Joshua affirms his own determination to be faithful 
As for me and my household, we will serve the Lord. The people affirmed their commitment without hesitation. And I quote, no, we will serve the Lord. Judges carried us from the initial settling of the land, ending with the tragic near loss of the tribe of Benjamin due to heinous behavior. The book, as you likely remember, is a bloody book as Israel waffles between serving God or embracing local pagan customs and gods. This trouble occurred, as chapter 1 notes, because the tribes did not drive out the inhabitants. Worse, Israel seems especially determined to be like the local pagans, often finding themselves in terrible distress because of it. However, in compassion, and I quote, the Lord raised up judges who saved them out of the hand of those who plundered them, yet they did not listen to their judges. It is important to note that Judges, 1 Samuel, etc., clearly indicate that Israel was never meant to be governed by a strong central power, such as a monarch. Rather, they were to be led by prophets, teachers, and priests to serve God directly. In other words, God intended them to live under maximum personal freedom, simply guided by his wisdom, not subordinated to some central human government but rather living together in a just, covenant-driven society. Tragically, Judges, all on its own, demonstrates that God's aspirations were never realized for Israel. Probably the most important lines in the book are found in chapter 2. The verse written here, in light of Joshua's death and those in his generation who had initially settled the land. I quote, after that whole generation had been gathered to their ancestors, that is, died, another generation grew up who knew neither the Lord nor what he had done for Israel. Then the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord and served the Baals. They forsook the Lord, the God of their ancestors who had brought them out of Egypt. They followed and worshiped various gods of the peoples around them. They aroused the Lord's anger. Ruth provides a beautiful respite from the dark, tragic history of Israel recounted in the Judges, focusing on two characters, a Hebrew woman, Naomi, who becomes widowed in the story, and her devoted Moabite daughter-in-law, Ruth, who, by the way, also becomes widowed, and in the process, also becomes a devout believer in the Hebrew God. Unlike the people of Israel, Ruth, who is a pagan Moabite, is attracted to the God of Israel and chooses to follow him leaving her family and pagan worship behind in powerful contrast to Israel at the time, who kept pursuing the gods of the local pagan nations. The same Ruth gave birth to King David's grandfather, a connection that ultimately interweaves her life with the story of Jesus, the Messiah yet many centuries in the future. Ruth's words of faithfulness to Naomi in chapter 1 and her decision to follow the God of the Hebrews are magnificent, and I quote them, don't urge me to leave you or turn back from you. Where you go, I will go. And where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die. And there I will be buried. May the Lord deal with me, be it ever so severely, if even death separates you and me. First Samuel covers a critical turning point in the history of Israel. They choose monarchy over the leadership of judges, teachers, prophets, and priests. 
By the way, specifically, they choose kingship or monarchy over God being their leader. And I'm quoting from um, chapter 8. And the Lord told him, listen to all that the people are saying to you. It is not you they have rejected. And here it is. But they have rejected me as their king. As they have done from the day I brought them up out of Egypt until this day, forsaking me and serving other gods, so they are doing to you. This request for a king, we discover, is especially motivated by two things. First, Samuel's sons are wicked. Secondly, when you saw that Nahash, king of the Ammonites, was moving against you, you said to me, No, we want a king to rule over us. Those words, by the way, from chapter 12. In following this transition, the book centers strongly around the last judge and prophet, Samuel, following his leadership during the transition to monarchy, and including the history of the first king, Saul, as well as his appointed successor, David. The book includes the remarkable story of David and Goliath, as well as the grace with which David relates to Saul, who hunts him relentlessly. The character contrast between the two men is pronounced, with David revealing a heart of sincere goodness. Some of the most powerful lines in the book, however, are ones spoken by Samuel to King Saul. And I quote, Samuel replied, Does the Lord delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as much as in obeying the Lord? To obey is better than sacrifice, and to heed is better than the fat of rams. For rebellion is like the sin of divination, and arrogance like the evil of idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has rejected you as king. Second Samuel follows the remarkable reign of David, beginning with David mourning at the news of Saul and Jonathan's deaths, then being anointed king over Judah, and finally, seven and a half years later, king over all Israel. The book includes a long struggle between the house of David and that of Saul, with David steadily gaining strength. Near the middle of the book, we also read the story of David's son, Absalom, attempting to take the kingdom from his father, but ultimately failing. The moment of greatest heartbreak in the book, however, comes when David has an affair with Bathsheba and then doubles down by arranging for the death of her husband in an effort to cover his tracks. He's sternly rebuked by the prophet Nathan, where perhaps some of the most important lines in the book are spoken. And I quote, this is what the Lord, the God of Israel says. I anointed you king over Israel and I delivered you from the hand of Saul. I gave you your master's house to you and your master's wives into your arms. I gave you all Israel and Judah. And if all this had been too little, I would have given you even more. First Kings picks up the history of Israel under monarchy with the rise of Solomon takes us through a national split between the tribe of Judah and the other ten tribes, resulting in the kingdom of Judah under Rehoboam and the kingdom of Israel under Jeroboam, son of Nebat. The Levites were not included in this count because they did not have their own tribal territory, but were dispersed among the tribes. Following the split, 1 Kings recounts the history of both nations with a special emphasis on the kingdom of Israel. The book ends with the death of two kings, Ahab, king of Israel, and Jehoshaphat, king of Judah. Aside from the division of the nation into two separate kingdoms, three notable elements of the book are, one, the most uh, mostly illustrious reign of Solomon, 
and then the seeds of the kingdom of Israel's demise, planted by Jeroboam when he created two golden calves as the center of worship for the people of Israel, and the powerful prophetic ministry of Elijah within the kingdom of Israel. Solomon's reign includes multiple building projects, including a magnificent temple that superseded the wilderness tabernacle. Of note is Solomon's magnificent prayer at the dedication of this magnificent temple. And it begins like this, Lord, the God of Israel, there is no God like you in heaven above or on earth below. You who keep your covenant of love with your servants who continue wholeheartedly in your way. You've kept your promise to your servant David, my father. With your mouth you have promised and with your hand you have fulfilled it as it is today. These words, a little bit later, are also worth noting, recording Elijah's encounter with God on Mount Sinai from chapter 19. After the fire came, a gentle whisper. When Elijah heard it, he pulled his cloak over his face and went out and stood at the mouth of the cave. Then a voice said to him, What are you doing here, Elijah? And finally, 2 Kings. The last book completed within the last 30 days begins with the ministry of Elijah, his being taken to heaven in a chariot, and Elisha the Tishbite taking up his prophetic ministry. The book details the fall of both kingdoms, the first to fall, Israel, in chapter 17. The second is Judah, which at the end of the book is found in captivity in Babylon. Each kingdom's fall can be credited to a significant degree to a few major players. For Israel, it began with the golden calves introduced in 1 Kings by Jeroboam, son of Nebat. And then in 2 Kings, the rebellious reigns of King Ahab and his wife Jezebel. Or I should say, rebellious reign of King Ahab and his wife Jezebel as they were together. For Judah, the reign of Hezekiah and his son Manasseh are the final turning point. Interspersed in the midst of all this, however, is the incredible ministry of Elisha and the countless miracles that attended his ministry, which included relatively basic miracles like the widow's oil supply with a purified stew to dramatic miracles like Naaman's healing from leprosy or the raising of the Shulamite's son. Of note are the words of the four men with leprosy who discovered the empty Aramean camp outside Samaria. And I quote, What we're doing is not right. This is a day of good news, and we are keeping it to ourselves. If we wait until daylight, punishment will overtake us. Let's go at once and report this to the royal palace. First Chronicles and its sister book, Second Chronicles, largely repeat history first reported in Second Samuel and the two kings. The history recorded in First Chronicles covers the reign of King David, beginning with the death of Saul, Israel's first king whom David succeeded. The book concludes with David's death. One of the significant highlights of the book are the details regarding David's preparations for the building of a magnificent temple. David said, My son Solomon is young and inexperienced, and the house to be built for the Lord should be of great magnificence and fame and splendor in the sight of all the nations. Therefore, I will make preparations for it. And that's from 1 Chronicles 22. 2 Chronicles follows the history of Israel through the dividing of the kingdom after Solomon's reign to the downfall of those two kingdoms, first Israel and then Judah. 
Again, much of the history of 2 Chronicles is first seen in the two kings. It's worth noting as well that 2 Chronicles, after the division of the kingdom, follows the history of the kingdom of Judah almost exclusively. This book includes many captivating accounts of God's providences, especially during the reign of Hezekiah. Before we move into the next book, I'll mention two watershed moments recorded in 2 Chronicles. First, the division of Israel into two separate kingdoms because of Rehoboam's ignorance. Speaking to the nation, the young king threatened, My little finger is thicker than my father's waist. My father laid on you a heavy yoke. I will make it even heavier. My father scourged you with whips. I will scourge you with scorpions. Second Chronicles 10. A coup followed, and in the wake of the coup, the new king of the ten rebellious tribes, Jeroboam, introduced a new form of worship which would be profoundly influential in the undoing of the kingdom of Israel. The second isn't so much a moment as a long, mostly wicked reign, and that's the reign of Manasseh. The Lord spoke to Manasseh and his people, but they paid no attention. So the Lord brought against them the army commanders of the king of Assyria, who took Manasseh prisoner, put a hook in his nose, bound him with bronze shackles, and took him to Babylon. Although the king returned to God while a prisoner, his people never recovered from his wicked reign. This was truly the beginning of the end for the kingdom of Judah. Ezra the ministry of Ezra, a priest and scribe, takes place several years after the people of Judah had been taken captive by Nebuchadnezzar. In fact, at the time of Ezra's ministry, the Babylonian kingdom had fallen to the Medes and the Persians with Cyrus on the throne. Ezra's contribution to the story takes basically three forms. He carefully records the legal struggles the people faced during the time of returning and rebuilding the temple. He also provides spiritual leadership to the returned exiles and records the efforts of the people in rebuilding the temple. Ezra came up from Babylon. He was a teacher well-versed in the law of Moses, which the Lord, the God of Israel, had given. The king had granted him everything he asked, for the hand of the Lord his God was on him, Ezra 7. Nehemiah, a contemporary of Ezra, provided leadership for the rebuilding of the wall of Jerusalem. The book is largely devoted to the struggle to do so, that is to rebuild the wall, as well as some of the reforms championed by Nehemiah. Speaking to the people, Nehemiah said, you see the trouble we are in. Jerusalem lies in ruins and its gates have been burned with fire. Come, let us rebuild the wall of Jerusalem, and we will no longer be in disgrace. That's Nehemiah 2. Esther records the incredible story of God's people facing annihilation by the Persians and how God's people were saved from death by the courageous actions of Mordecai and especially Esther, who had providentially become queen. One of the most notable passages in the book of Esther is this one. Go, gather together all the Jews who are in Susa and fast for me. 
Do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my attendants will fast as you do. When this is done, I will go to the king, even though it is against the law. And if I perish, I perish. The story of Job records the faith struggle of a man, and to some degree his friends. After the man, Job, suffered the loss of nearly everything at the hand of demonic agents. One of the most telling passages in the book is this one. At this, Job got up and tore his robe and shaved his head. Then he fell to the ground in worship and said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I will depart. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. May the name of the Lord be praised. In all this, Job did not sin by charging God with wrongdoing. That's Job chapter 1. In the end, Job and his friends learn some crucial lessons, and Job's wealth is more than restored. Psalms. The book is well known as a collection of, well, psalms. And I'll leave it at that. Proverbs doesn't need much of a note either, as the title also reveals its purpose, a collection of proverbs or wise sayings. These lines represent the book well. My son, do not forget my teaching, but keep my commands in your heart, for they will prolong your life many years and bring you peace and prosperity. That's Proverbs 3. Ecclesiastes records King Solomon's struggle to find meaning in life. Much of the book revolves around the melancholy feeling that life is futile. Yet by the end of the book, the author has gained clarity. Now all has been heard. Here is the conclusion of the matter. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the duty of all mankind. For God will bring every deed into judgment, including every hidden thing, whether it is good or or evil. And that's Ecclesiastes 12. Song of Solomon is a steamy love story between Solomon and a certain Shulamite. And I quote a few lines. Place me like a seal over your heart, like a seal on your arm, for love is as strong as death, its jealousy unyielding as the grave. It burns like blazing fire, like a mighty flame. Many waters cannot quench love, rivers cannot sweep it away. If one were to give all the wealth of one's house for love, it would be utterly scorned. And that's from Song of Solomon 8. Isaiah's ministry took place under the reigns of the Judean kings Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah. During this time, Isaiah persistently called the people to reform, especially challenging their fascination with idolatry. This prophet's ministry unfolded at a time when God's people were in serious moral trouble yet with the hope of reform. He is found pointing often to God's goodness, even highlighting the hope of the coming Messiah, as in chapter 61. The spirit of the sovereign Lord is on me because the Lord has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom for the captives and release from darkness for the prisoners." Jeremiah's ministry begins during the reign of Manasseh's grandson, Josiah, and ends after the collapse of the Judean kingdom at the hands of the Babylonians. 
His ministry is permeated by ominous threats of impending doom as God verbally bombards his people, hoping against hope that they will change course before it's too late. Take a scroll and write on it all the words I have spoken to you concerning Israel, Judah, and all the other nations from the time I began speaking to you in the reign of Josiah till now. Perhaps when the people of Judah hear about every disaster I plan to inflict on them, they will each turn from their wicked ways, then I will forgive their wickedness and their sin. And that's from Jeremiah 36. Lamentations is a lament over the fall of Jerusalem to the Babylonian army under the command of Nebuchadnezzar. I'll simply share these few lines from the book capturing the flavor of the text. How deserted lies the city once so full of people, how like a widow she is, who once was great among the nations. She who was queen among the provinces has now become a slave. Bitterly she weeps at night. Tears are on her cheeks. Among all her lovers, there is no one to comfort her. All her friends have betrayed her. They have become her enemies. Ezekiel. His ministry began in the early days of the Babylonian assault on Jerusalem. Some captives had been taken by the Babylonians, and Ezekiel was among them. Ezekiel's ministry began before the final overthrow of the city, and this is reflected in the early chapters as God, through Ezekiel, using strong words and bizarre dramas, sought to spare the people from the looming overthrow of the kingdom. Ezekiel's ministry shifts as the historical situation changes, with the final chapters of his book attempting to capture the imagination of the people through portraying the magnificent future that can be if they choose loyalty to God. The timing of the prophet's ministry overlaps that of Jeremiah, seen in the broad thematic similarity between the two volumes. However, Ezekiel was among the exiles in Babylonia, while Jeremiah largely remained back in Jerusalem. Ezekiel's ministry also overlapped that of Daniel, another one of the captives in Babylon. Daniel, as a person, was uniquely positioned within the highest levels of the Babylonian government during his entire ministry. His message is also unique as, for the most part, he does not speak to the Hebrew people, but to the power brokers, beginning with Nebuchadnezzar, under whom he served. His book contains essentially two types of content, stories and prophecy. Stories include the fiery furnace and the lion's den. Prophecies include Nebuchadnezzar's dream as well as Daniel's dream of savage beasts. Some chapters combine both elements, story and prophecy, and then one chapter was written entirely by Nebuchadnezzar, sharing his personal faith journey. The prophetic elements in Daniel deal almost exclusively with vast historical time periods, depicting the political and religious future, especially the struggle between those political powers and God's people, as well as predicting the coming of the Messiah. That said, much of the prophecy in Daniel concerns non-Israelite nations, such as the Babylonians and Greeks. Hosea, a contemporary of Isaiah's, began his ministry during the reign of the Judean king, Isaiah, and continued through the reign of Hezekiah. He also ministered during the reigns of Jeroboam II and Jehoash, kings of Israel. 
His message, in fact, focuses almost exclusively on Israel's rebellion and coming judgment. Through the ministry of Hosea, God compares Israel to an unfaithful wife and lists in some detail the ways in which Israel had been unfaithful all the while God had loved her. Joel is a sobering call to repentance and a declaration of imminent judgment. It's also a book of hope and providence. The book even includes some apocalyptic references. Amos provides a solid self-introduction. The words of Amos, one of the shepherds of Tekoa, the vision he saw concerning Israel two years before the earthquake, when Isaiah was king of Judah and Jeroboam, son of Jehoash, was king of Israel. His prophetic ministry dealt with Damascus and Moab, as well as Israel. Obadiah is a short book of only 21 verses and is a prophecy against Edom. Jonah tells the fascinating story, remember the giant fish? Of a rebellious prophet sent to warn the great city of Nineveh. In the book, we come to discover, among other things, that this prophet takes great issue with God's love and mercy. Micah's ministry overlaps with Isaiah's, and his prophecies are concerned with both Samaria and Jerusalem. The timing of his ministry puts him before the fall of either the kingdom of Israel or the kingdom of Judah, and his voice speaks strongly against the injustices perpetrated in both kingdoms warning of impending doom, and also noting that Israel's rebellion had spread to Judah. Nahum's short prophetic work is targeted squarely at the Assyrian capital, Nineveh, predicting imminent devastating disaster, although notes of God's compassion can also be found. Habakkuk is somewhat unique in that it finds the prophet wrestling with God over his involvement with the nations, especially his apparent approval of or indifference to violence and wickedness. However, the prophet finds resolution in the book and decides to wait patiently and expectantly on God, who is, after all, at work. Zephaniah was a contemporary of Jeremiah, his ministry unfolded during the reign of Josiah. As the kingdom of Israel has already fallen, his ministry is focused on the kingdom of Judah, predicting fast-approaching, devastating judgment on the rebellious kingdom while urging repentance. Haggai is a prophet to the returning Israelites after the Babylonian exile and during the rebuilding of the temple. He is a contemporary of Zechariah's, and his ministry strengthens and supports the courageous leadership of Ezra, Nehemiah, and others, especially urging the people to complete the rebuilding of the temple. Zechariah, as just noted, is a contemporary of Haggai's, also working in support of Ezra and Nehemiah, and other leaders in the work of rebuilding. His ministry speaks not only to the returning exiles, but to God's displeasure with the nations who have abused God's people, declaring judgment against them. Malachi assures God's people of his love, while calling them to account for things like lame and diseased sacrifices or the failure to return tithes and offerings. The book also predicts the ministry of John the Baptist and the coming of the Messiah. Matthew is the first of four Gospels recounting the birth, life, death, 
resurrection, and ascension of Jesus. Matthew is one of only two Gospels that offer a detailed account of Jesus' birth. He, as well, is the only other Gospel to provide a genealogy of the Messiah. Matthew's key contribution is his focus on the kingdom that Jesus is establishing, recording Jesus' comprehensive kingdom teaching, often referred to as the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew also provides significant coverage of Jesus' parables, especially as related to the kingdom. He records as well Jesus' strongest, most extensive rebuke of the religious elite. Mark is a succinct account of the story of Jesus, often employing the word immediately. Unlike Matthew and Luke, Mark does not include Jesus' birth story, but instead begins with the ministry of John the Baptist. While much of Mark's account is brief, there are a few stories which he tells with unique detail, one being the story of a demon-possessed man delivered by Jesus. Luke is the other gospel that, like Matthew, gives significant detail regarding the birth of Jesus. His account was written specifically to reinforce the faith of Theophilus. Luke includes not only the story of Jesus' birth, but also that of John the Baptist, including significant details about each child's parents. While Matthew focuses on the kingdom and the myriad prophetic connections between the ancient prophet's messages and Jesus' own life, Luke focuses strongly on the internal evidence of Jesus' life, teachings, and miracles as the evidence that Jesus was and is indeed the Son of God. John writes from a more theological paradigm extensively covering the teachings of Jesus and his often intense engagement with the cocky religious leaders. His book is also unique among the Gospels in its detailed argument that Jesus is the incarnate Son of God. Another unique feature is John's reference to the miraculous signs of Jesus' divinity, beginning with the miracle at the wedding in Cana. Among the extensive conversations in the book are Jesus' discussion with Nicodemus one night and the interaction with the woman at the well near Sychar. John also includes Jesus' extensive teaching on the Holy Spirit, as well as his intercessory prayer. Acts, also written by Luke, is the recounting of the early days of the church for his friend Theophilus. The book begins with the account of the outpouring of the Spirit on the day of Pentecost, tells of Saul, the persecutor-turned-apostle, and includes extensive coverage of his ministry. Luke's account follows Paul on the way to Rome, including an impressive shipwreck story. Romans is the first of 13 books accredited directly to Paul, the former Saul, whose conversion story is recounted in Acts. Romans is a letter written especially to Christians in Rome. Paul devotes the first eight chapters of his book to detailed teaching on the gospel. This is followed by a reflection on the place of Jews in the context of the gospel and the church. He also includes significant practical guidance to believers on how to live out their faith. 1 Corinthians is one of two letters written to the church in Corinth. This first letter is hard-hitting, addressing division in the church as well as calling them out for tolerating sexual immorality. The letter is full of practical advice, including how to deal with food offered to idols, how to behave in church, and the place of gifts in the ministry of the church. The letter also finds Paul defending the legitimacy of his ministry. 
Second Corinthians is a follow-up letter to the first and finds Paul softening his tone a bit. Paul clearly communicating his deep love for the church on more than one occasion in the book or the letter. The letter includes teachings on the ministry of reconciliation and generosity, along with other topics. We also find Paul again dealing with his ministry or defending his ministry, which was under intense attack. Galatians is a letter written to believers in Galatia who were under intense pressure to abandon their faith in Christ and return to a works-based religion, driven by teachers seeking to bring them under Jewish tradition. The book is a concise, powerful argument for salvation through faith in Christ alone. Ephesians is written to believers in Ephesus and focuses especially on God's purpose of bringing about universal unity through Jesus. Philippians is written to the church in Philippi and is not as theologically heavy as Paul's books previously mentioned. Among the highlights of this book is Paul's testimony of his love for Christ as well as his beautiful description of Christ's sacrificial humility and incentive to be like Jesus. Colossians is written to the believers in Colossae and, like Philippians, is not as theologically intense. In it, Paul highlights the preeminence and centrality of Christ. He also talks of his own sufferings for the sake of the gospel and urges the church not to give in to false teachers. 1 Thessalonians is the first of two letters from Paul to the church in Thessalonica. In it, he recounts his labor for them, as well as Timothy's encouraging report about the church. He encourages the church to live a life that pleases God, as well as addresses the return of Jesus. 2 Thessalonians is Paul's follow-up letter to the previous, further dealing with the second coming and encouraging the church to be faithful. 1 Timothy is the first of four letters written by Paul to specific individuals. This one is the first of two written to Timothy, whom Paul considered a son in the faith. The letter is intended to provide a wide range of practical counsel and encouragement to this young, gifted minister. 2 Timothy is a second letter to the young Timothy, focusing especially on reinforcing this young minister's sense of calling and urging his fervent commitment to it. Titus is a brief letter to another worker whom Paul considered a son. The counsel is similar in nature to that in both 1st and 2nd Timothy, offering practical guidance to this Christian leader. Philemon is a brief letter of appeal to a friend of Paul's to whom he was returning the man's runaway slave. Hebrews is a carefully crafted letter written specifically to a Jewish Christian audience. The central argument of the book is that the ministry of Jesus is the natural realization of all that's anticipated in the Mosaic priesthood and tabernacle services. Further, Christ's ministry is far superior on every count. The book is interspersed with direct appeals to the reader as well as significant teaching on faith. The author addresses a few practical matters at the end of the book. James is named for its author and is written to a wide Christian audience. The main focus of the book is on practical faith, from addressing prejudice against the poor to the use of the tongue to the power of greed, with the author also addressing a few additional matters. First Peter is named for its author and is also directed at a wide audience. 
It deals especially with the high calling of the Christian and offers counsel on relating to each other as the people of God. The book also touches on the subject of suffering as believers, ending by exhorting the elders to faithfulness. Second Peter begins by reinforcing the believer's calling and the dependability of Scripture. This is followed by a large section about false teachers and then treats on the second coming of Jesus. 1 John is the first of a trilogy of letters by John. The first letter is not addressed to a specific audience, but drills down deliberately on the divinity of Jesus, as well as driving home the necessity of living out Jesus' command to love one another. 2 John is a brief letter encouraging the readers to love one another. 3 John is written specifically to Gaius and encourages support for fellow workers, as well as gives advice on dealing with a divisive individual, Diotrephes. Jude is named for its author and written to a general audience. It bears a significant similarity in content to 2 Peter. Revelation is the final book of the Bible and written by John. It provides prophetic insight into coming events and includes specific counsel to seven churches in Asia Minor to whom it's addressed. The book focuses strongly on Jesus and the struggle of his church against powerful antagonistic forces driven by Satan and his agents. It depicts Christ's final victory and the ultimate restoration of earth on which the redeemed will live together with God in a universe from which evil has been completely banished. Well, that's all for today. 